This is The Bittersweet Life, a show for expats, former expats, travel lovers, and people who dream about moving far away someday. I'm Katie Sewell, a recent repatriate to Seattle in the United States after a year in Rome. My co-host is Tiffany Parks, an expat who spent the last 10 years in Rome. If you're new to the show, I encourage you to join us for the whole journey by beginning with episode one. If you're really interested in today's theme, however, back up to the beginning afterwards. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today we have to face the fact that sometimes travel is not possible. Sometimes you need to stay put. But that doesn't mean you can't travel in your mind, right? True. Especially when you're nine months pregnant. Then travel is really not possible. Right. So Tiffany's been doing a lot of <laughs> like traveling in her mind. <laughs> physically not possible. Yes. <laughs> and how do we do that, Katie? We do it by reading. Of by course. reading. Yay. So today we thought we'd talk about books and talk about some books that are really, really great for armchair travel. And we have a few um, experts in quotes coming up on the show, but let's talk about some that are highlights for us. Tiffany, what's a book you love that takes place somewhere else that really transported you there? Right now I'm reading Cutting for Stone by Verghese. That takes place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, a place that is not necessarily on the top of my travel list, but it's definitely opening my eyes to a part of the world that I know nothing about. So that's cool because, you know, like a lot of times we have preconceived ideas about what certain places are like, and we actually have no idea. And uh, not that reading a book is going to be, you know, the same as going there, but uh, it can give you a taste, a flavor. Um, but that's just what I happen to be reading right now. I, in the past year, I read... The Cleaner of Chartres by Sally Vickers, a very lighthearted but very well-written novel that takes place in Chartres in northern France, really made me want to go there. Not because there's anything besides the cathedral there, not that there's any, you know, anything so special about that town, but just it was just written so well and so kind of cozily. It just made that town seem like a place that would be really nice to live. And so that's one thing. I also recently read The Inheritance of Loss, which takes place in northern India. I actually have been in northern India, not in that particular spot, but I've been in northern India. So that was, that was interesting to read because, you know, it was bringing back some memories of, of that part of the world when I traveled there. So, so you know, you can, you can learn about new places or you can revisit places you've already been. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. What about you? What are some of your favorites? Well, the first one that really comes to mind for me is a book called Third Wish, written by Robert Fulgham. It is five volumes long, Holy. which sounds like it's extraordinarily long, but it's not. But it is two big books. I think in um, Prague, they're actually sold as five separate volumes, but I think that's the only country where you buy it that way. It's a book about three people who meet while they're all in a transitionary period of time in their lives. And it's about all these different travels that they do independently and together. A lot of it is set in Crete, 
and I became obsessed with the idea of going to Crete while reading this book. And I still am obsessed with the idea of going to Crete. I just haven't had a chance to go there yet. But I will someday. I think your chance might be coming up soon. I think you should go in a couple weeks. Well, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'll get there someday, though. Um, the book is also really cool because it, it has a bunch of art in it. They hired artists to draw stuff to go along with the story. And it also comes with a CD that has music on it that goes with the story. Oh, that's cool. So, like, cool. each character has a theme song that goes through their head. And so you can actually listen to what their theme song is. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it gives you this flavor of what their characters are like in a totally different way. It's also a lot about exploration and wonder. Like, there's this huge section on Monet where they get obsessed with Monet and going to his gardens. It's not really about anything. It's just about these people and their curiosity and their explorations of the world and themselves. I read it at a time where it was the most important book I could have read at the time. I was sort of stuck in a rut. I had become very insular. I'd been in a relationship for eight years. I was working the same job I'd been at for almost a decade. I think I had lost a little bit of my sense of wonder in the world. And this book just reopened all of that for me and I think led to a lot of big changes in my life I ended up leaving that relationship all these things and um not just because of the book but because I realized that I was not connecting with a part of myself that these characters somehow reflected back at me if that makes sense yeah obsessed to the point where I thought I need to meet this author I like I need to know him he is a person who is like me and he lives in Seattle so I knew it was possible and so then I just had to find him. I didn't know how to reach him at all. Luckily, I worked for NPR, so I had this platform where I could ask him for an interview. There was a reason for me to reach out to him. Nice. Uh, but there was no number with the book, nothing. So I just started calling people I thought might know him based in my contact list. And I still don't <laughs> know. I still don't know how we ended up connecting. I eventually got a phone call on my work phone that just said, Hello, Katie Sewell. This is Robert Fulgham, and I hear you're trying to find me. But I don't know how wow. he heard that I was trying to find him. <laughs> so when we first met, he showed up at the radio station wearing a bunny suit. Random. Well, the bunny suit factors into the, into the book. The fact that he showed up in the bunny suit, I almost could have predicted that he was going to. I just felt like he was going to be dressed as a bunny when he showed up, and he was, and it was so perfect. I also decided at some point that not only was I going to meet him, I needed to know him so well that we would become friends and that we would be good enough friends that he would one day invite me to go to Crete with him. Now, I will say that we have become that good of friends where he would invite me to go, but he's selling his place on Crete right now. So I don't know if we'll actually ever get to go to Crete. Oh, but... what luck. <laughs> what are the odds that you finally get to know this guy and he's selling his place on Crete? I know. Life I know. is just unfair. He has another house in Moab, Utah, and he did invite me down there and I went down for a long weekend. So it's not that he hasn't invited me two places, but... I don't think we're ever going to get to Crete. It's a pity. It really is. But that's not the reason I love the book. I mean, the book is just worth getting your hands on if you can. It's not for everybody, but... And what's the title again? It's called Third Wish. Third Wish. Okay, I'll look that up. I mean, the only other author that really comes to mind, like, just off the top of my head, is I love mysteries, and I love Henning Mankell. He's a Swedish writer, and he writes these very dark mystery series. What's his character's name? Uh, oh, Kurt Wallander. The Kurt Wallander Mysteries. 
I think PBS does a series on that, but he makes Sweden seem so dark and so dreary <laughs> that I'm like, I'll never go to Sweden. But I just love those books. I think he's a great writer or his translator is a great writer. One of the two. I don't know because he writes in Swedish, but probably both. What is it that makes a writer able to capture a place so well? Or what is it? What is that special thing that some writers have and some writers don't have where they just are able to make a city come alive or a place, a country? It's not that common. I mean, yes, there are several wonderful books out there that, that do that, but it's not every day that you find that. Yeah. And we should mention that you're still at your mother-in-law's house, which is what the voices we can hear in the background. Yeah. If you can hear people arguing, it's because dinner is starting and, um, and I'm recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be done no, soon. It's not just that. It's not just that. What is it? It's, I, I don't really know. I mean, that's a, that's a fine question. It must be something in the little details that they weave in enough fabric of what daily life is like that you can feel like you're actually there. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a challenge that I face because I'm writing a book that takes place in Rome, and we've talked about it. It is a book for younger readers, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to capture the city for them too. Although, obviously, you have to be a little bit more succinct when you're writing for younger readers. But I do think about that and I wonder, am I capturing the city? You know, to me, Rome is, is part of my everyday life. So sometimes I don't see it the way that you sometimes don't notice things that are right in front of you. I hope that I'm able to do that. I hope, I mean, obviously, to some extent, uh, I hope that I'm able to, uh, I'm at least learning how to do that. It's a wonderful thing. For me, my favorite, my favorite books are generally set in foreign places. And then there's, there's another dimension that you can add to that, which is probably my very favorite, which is when you have a different place and you also have a different time. Books that take place in the past in a foreign place. And one that comes to mind is one that you recently gave me that you had read, which is The Instance of the Finger Post, which takes place in 17th century Oxford, which I loved. It took me a while to get into it, I will admit. But once I did, I was absolutely enthralled. Ian Pears. That was my best accidental find when I was in Rome. That book. That book is great. He does such a good job of researching it and bringing it to life. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. I really, really love that. I also recently read, and when you live in a foreign place, you have a lot of friends who often come and go, move out of the city, you inherit a lot of books, which I inherited a lot of your books, including the instance of the finger post. I'll inherit these books and I won't necessarily read them because they're not quite my style. And I won't read them until I have nothing else to read. And then I'll be like, okay, I'll try this. And then it'll turn out to like be an amazing book. That was the case with a book I read called English Passengers by Matthew Neal, or Kneel, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. But absolutely wonderful book, which takes place... Uh, have you heard of this book? Mm -mm. It takes. Nope. It's basically a group of sailors from the Isle of Man, which was at that time not part of England. It takes place in the late 1800s. I'm th I think the late 1800s. Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it was the late 1700s, but I can't remember. Mid-1800s, mid I think. Anyway, uh, and it's about, you know, this group of sailors who take their ship down to Tasmania. <laughs> Tasmania. Not Tanzania. Tasmania. And they bring a bunch <laughs> of English. It's, it's a complicated story, but it is, it is really, really great. It takes place 
many different places, but specifically in Tasmania. I cannot say the name of that place. Tasmania <laughs> in the 1800s. So get the Eng English passengers, get the instance of the finger post. Yes. And, uh, and third sign. Is that what it's called? Third, third wish. Sign? Third wish. Third wish. Sorry, third wish. All right. And now let's, let's turn it over to another expert that I recently talked to that can give us a few other recommendations. So I'm here with Nancy Pearl. She recommends books regularly for NPR and on the old station I used to work for, KUOW. And she has a book called Book Lust to Go, which is recommended reading for travelers, vagabonds, and dreamers. And she also loves armchair travel. So I thought I should come talk to you and get some recommendations for you about books with great senses of place. And yes. Okay, so um, I have to say that I... I, I'm not much of a traveler. There's a wonderful line from one of the books that I'm going to tell you about today. It's called Between Terror and Tourism, which is a terrific title by a man named Michael Mushaw. He writes when he, after he has arrived in a totally inhospitable place, like say Yemen in 2004, he says, um, the pleasure of being where I had never been before, doing what I had never done, bound for who knew what, I found it all thrilling. I always have. Now that is not me. <laughs> <laughs> so I do much of my traveling via book. I love armchair travel. I think that when it's done well, it's just an unbeatable genre of books to explore. And I'm happy to say I've been pretty much all over the world. <laughs> what is it about real travel that you don't like? Well, I, I'm somebody who gets nervous about timetables and making people wait. I just can't stand the thought of somebody waiting for me. So missing a plane or I'm, I'm just not a, I mean, I love flying. I don't get nervous no matter how bumpy it is or anything like that. But it's the before and after. It's not the being there. Yeah, it's all the uncertainty. Like, I, I mean, like, where do you eat? I, I mean, I'm just not good at that kind of thing. And I'm not a pre-planner, so... I defeat myself at both ends of the trip. <laughs> so what are some of the best books, ones that really feel like they've transported you to somewhere else? Well, I think one of the first ones that I think it should be just required reading for anyone who's kind of dipping their toe into armchair travel or a seasoned armchair travel reader who's missed this is Paul Theroux's The Great Railway Bazaar, which is his series of train trips across Asia. If you're interested, as I am, in India, it's just a wonderful, wonderful picture of the time. And it was written probably, I believe, in the 1980s. So much has changed, but it's so worthwhile reading. It's just a wonderful, you're just transported to India. It's, it's absolutely an incredible experience. He does a lot of books about different places right he does he does and some of them I've liked a lot more than others he did one about um, Oceania which was not my favorite of his books a recent one that he did which I absolutely loved which I was also going to mention is um, Dark Star Safari Overland from Cairo to Cape Town and this was published in 2004 so again it's 10 years old but not a lot not a lot about the area has changed all that much. And so when you read this, Paul Theroux was a Peace Corps volunteer in Uganda. And so he goes back to Uganda and sees some of the people that he worked with when he was there as a Peace Corps volunteer. 
But again, with Pothero, it's the traveling and it's the oddities, the people he meets and it's just a hoot. One of the things that Tiffany and I were talking about and trying to get at, but we couldn't come up with a good answer for was what makes a book work where it really brings that place alive versus the fact that it's just set there. First of all, I think it depends whether it's fiction or nonfiction. But I think in any case, when you're talking about fiction, and you can do a lot of armchair traveling via novels as well. I think it's what the author is interested in doing or the type of reader the author is interested in attracting to that book. There are people who aren't particularly interested in a vivid description of the place. I mean, they're happy with a place name or two, whether it's made up or not made up in fiction. And then there are people, I I have a friend, Martha, who whenever I say to her, what are you reading, Martha? She will always preface every answer by saying, I feel like I'm there. She said, oh, I feel like I'm there, 18th century France, or something like that. And for her, that, that sense of place setting is one of the most important aspects of a book. For me, it's not, which is um, interesting. Mm-hmm. So are there fiction ones that you really like that are also armchair travel? There are many that do such a good job of that. There's a novel by Aminata Forna called The Memory of Love, which is set in an African country during its civil war. That or Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's um, Americana, which probably is many people's introduction to Nigeria. And certainly those Nigerian sections, you do feel like you're there. Are there certain countries you don't like to visit? You come across the book in the bookstore and you say, oh, it's set there, I guess I'll pass. Actually, no, uh uh-uh, there isn't. I'll read a book set anywhere. And there's a wonderful mystery series set in Tibet. The first book begins with the main character. He's a, a Chinese policeman who was fired from his job and ends up as a prisoner in Tibet. And so it brings up that whole issue. I mean, I I think you learn from every book you read, don't you? I do, but I find that usually if a book is set in Haiti, it's not going to be one I like. And I don't know why. It's just because I've gotten halfway through books about Haiti multiple times and just been like, "Uh, I guess I'm done. Really? Oh. Yeah. Maybe it's because they're so dark, usually. They are dark, and, and there's a, um, a terrific novel that uh, by Bob Shikoshis called The Woman Who Lost Her Soul, which is about 800 pages, and much of it is set in Haiti. I thought it was a wonderful novel, first of all, but it's, it's a hard book to read because of the subject matter. And Yeah, that was actually one of the ones I quit. Yeah, yes, <laughs> right, so. right. I know a lot of people did. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's also set in Turkey. And there's a, another wonderful novel set in Turkey in the 1950s by Rose McCauley called The Towers of Trebizond, which is funny. And it has like an insane camel is one of the one of the characters. And what's most interesting to me about that book, one of the things that's most interesting is that the main character is about a group of of um Anglicans who are in Turkey trying to convert the, quote, heathen, unquote, natives. Aunt Dot, who is not telling the story, but the subject, one of the main characters, Aunt Dot is especially interested in um, in the heathen women because she wants to make sure that they're not going to be second-class citizens to stand up for themselves. And that's a book that is just 
absolutely wonderful. And Birds Without Wings, another book set in, in Turkey at the end of World War One, by um, Louis de Berniers. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's a book that tells you, gives you a history of Turkey and a biography of Ataturk in this one wonderful, wonderful novel. I could go on, you know, for I know, days. I'm going to, I'll have to put a book list on our website, <laughs> thebittersweetlife.net. So if you're not writing all these down, you can look it up there. Can you armchair travel when it, the place is a fake location? It's not the same experience, but I think you can. And one example is, I think I know Tolkien's Middle Earth forwards to backwards. I mean, I, I think I could take you through Mirkwood and to um, Lothlorien and all of those, all of those places. So I, I think you can. And I think, for example, there's a brand new book just out called The Oregon Trail, and it's about a man. It's a, a memoir about Rinker Buck, who's the author, and his brother who take a covered wagon journey with mules pulling the covered wagon from St. Joe, Missouri to Oregon, following as much as they can given the hundred years uh, between the the, uh, the wagon trains of Narcissa and Marcus Whitman, for example, given the interstates and everything that's covered up those ruts. But they followed rut by rut by rut almost that journey. And I felt like I was with them rooting them on and wanting the mules to make it uh, and all of Feeling that. like they were crazy? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think they felt like, or at least Rinker did, felt like he was, he was you know, a little bit of that, that craziness. It isn't an easy trip. It certainly gave me a good sense of that whole process. And I remember as a little kid reading one of those orange childhood of the famous American, they were orange then, they've been reprinted in a different color cover, but um, the childhood of the famous Americans about Narcissa Whitman. And then to read a, an adult view of what she was doing and who she was. I mean, I have nothing but admiration for those, the nerve of those people. I would never have done that. One of the books that you gave to me that I recently read that I thought made a good sense of place was Heap House. Yes, the Ed, the Edward Carey uh, fantasy novel for older, I would say 12 and up. Yeah, yeah. quick read. Uh, yeah, yes, Heap House, fabulous, fabulous fantasy. And and the sequel is now out called Fowlsham. Do you have to try that, Katie? But uh, the thing about one of the most important aspects of fantasy and science fiction is the world building that the authors do. And a lot of what makes a fantasy novel appeal to fantasy readers. Fantasy readers tend to do what armchair travel readers do. They want they want to enter into a re, into a world that you can see and hear and feel and smell and all of that. And so the world building aspect is absolutely vital. George R. R. Martin, Tolkien, Edward Carey, the best fantasies really the Hunger Games come with that spectacularly well-worked-out world. Tiffany is working on a book that's for 12, 11, 10 years old that's set in Rome. And one of her questions has been, how much does she really need to bring Rome alive for that sort of an audience? I think that she needs to make it clear that it's Rome and not Venice, for example, or Florence somehow. But I think the danger would be putting too much description 
a, a lot of description for you're running for kids a lot of description is going to slow it down yeah it's going to go they're going to just ignore it because they want to find out what happens next well that's a lot <laughs> Can I ask you one more question, actually? Of course. I'm about to go on a big trip, and I have to be very conscientious about how many books I'm packing, but I'm also going to have a lot of chances to read. I'm finally going to have a lot of time where I'm just sitting around in quiet places. Is there anything you would recommend me taking with me? So you don't read on an e-reader? Well, my husband has an e-reader, but we only own the one, and... He's loaded it up, and I can't imagine being able to get it out of his hands because all of his stuff is going to be on it. So if we're reading side by side, I need some book. Well, before e-readers, and I have to say I'm not a fan of e-readers, and when I'm home I tend not to read anything on an e-reader. I'd much rather hold the book. But when I'm traveling, I really see the the benefit of of e-readers. But that aside, before there were e-readers, I used to go to the bookstore, the used bookstore, and I would just load up on old mass market paperbacks and just go through them. I would take five or six all different kinds, like a couple mysteries or some historical novels or just a a novel that I really loved and want to reread. Did you read Ordinary People? Yes, way, way back. Yeah. Freshman year of high school. Yeah, that's a wonderful, absolutely wonderful novel. So that was one that I took with me, I remember. So are you inclined to do that kind of thing? Pick up a whole bunch yeah. of little ones? Yeah, and I, I mean, I often just shed them along the yes, way. that's yeah. what I do. I, I always stun, I tear out the pages as I'm going along to kind of lighten my backpack. People I'm sitting next to on an airplane or the um, flight attendants are just like stunned when I'm throwing away <laughs> these pages. But I, I mean, I'm buying these, you know, sort of grungy books. So who cares? What does it matter? What right? does it matter? Right, right. Uh, oh, I know. What about for a place? I'm going to give you a place, but it's India. Okay. The Raj Quartet by uh, Paul Scott. Okay. Um, it's, it's four volumes. The first one is called The Jewel in the Crown. And they're absolutely wonderful. And they're in little mass market paperbacks. What kind of a book is that? It's set in just at the time, in the years leading up to India's independence from Britain. The British in India at that time and the Indian characters. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Do you want me to loan you my little mass market paperback? Well, I might have to leave it somewhere. I'll go find it. All right, because I'm thinking I'm going to replace my map because they're just showing it again on PBS. So I'm thinking that I might have to replace my mass market paperbacks. So before we end, I should mention that Nancy and I work on a podcast together that you're the main star of, along with Steve Scher, my old radio partner, which is called That Stack of Books. So if you cannot get enough book recommendations, check it out. All right. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Katie. It's been great. Anytime. So that's a lot of recommendations for you. So I advise that you get reading. Right, Tiffany? Absolutely. I know I'll be doing that because I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. That's right. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.